Craft, a podcast dedicated to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna, I am your host. On today's episode, unsurprisingly, we're going to be diving into the Ikoria spoiler. Now, the set gets released on Thursday of this week for the general public, and I'm excited because Wizards has given me access to a special preview account, and I'm going to be playing in the early access event. That's going to be the day before, Wednesday, April 15th, which is actually the day after this podcast will be released. So I'm really stoked about that. And you can find that. I'll be streaming it live on my Twitch channel, ArenaCraft Podcast. So it'll Twitch TV forward slash ArenaCraft Podcast. And I'm planning to go live around noon Pacific time. I might be able to get on a little bit earlier than that. We'll see. My work lately has been both intense and very unpredictable. But if you tune in at noon, you will definitely catch me playing some Ikoria. So please come and join in. It would be very fun to have your participation. And together we can create some decks and maybe even get in a draft or two, something like that. So I'm really stoked about that. Again, that's noon Pacific time, Wednesday, April 15th, which is tomorrow from when I'm releasing this episode. And now I'm excited to introduce today's guest who's going to help us go through the Ikoria spoiler and try to make sense of this wild and crazy set. And this is someone who is a veteran streamer, has been playing Magic since 2011, TwitchCon ambassador, Mythic Invitational participant, also a member of Team Genji, and an experienced gamer who's been making content for a long, long time. So today my guest is Allison Skybills. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm doing great. You know, I'm going to be honest. We've been having some technical difficulties here, and I'm just going to put that right out there so that, you know, if, if anything feels funny, just so you guys know, we've, we've been up, down, and sideways to try to make this call work today. So I thank you so much for bearing with me for all of that. And we're just picking it right up where we left off. So um, yeah, I'm super excited to talk about Ikaria. The set is really, just has so much to it. And I just quickly wanted to ask you, Allison, about your history with Magic. Um, I know you've been playing since 2011, you told me. So if you could just share with us a little bit about that, that'd be awesome. So I began playing Magic in grad school. Now, I had played Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon before, but I had to kind of give that up, you know, put it all to the side while I was going through undergrad. Well, in grad school, I just needed a break from everything I was going through. So I went with my friend over to the local game store, and we played in the Innistrad pre-release, and it was one of the most fun, yet challenging, because Innistrad is a very challenging set, especially to learn magic on, way to approach the game. And that type of challenge kept me coming back for more. To to reiterate, if you've played Innistrad before, there are some real power cards in the set. You have to remember, this is the set where Snapcaster Mage and Liliana the Veil originated. And those are both very difficult cards to kind of play your way around. These are in legacy formats, for example. So anything that kind of gets picked up in modern and legacy, you know you're in for quite the challenge. So absolutely loved Innistrad and fell in love with the game ever since. 
That's awesome. And so, and we were just discussing this a little bit earlier. You were telling me that you had come in on Arena, like just kind of soon into the beta, right? Yeah. So it wasn't the first wave. It was, we'll call it the second wave of people that were in. A friend of mine was able to help me get an invite into the beta. And to give you an idea, it was when Amicat and Kaladash were in there. So we didn't really quite have the Guilds of Ravnica yet. But I kind of miss playing with the Yamaket, and I'm hoping that eventually incorporates itself back into that historic format that's been created as a result. Totally. I know. I have my fingers crossed, too, because I am personally a huge fan of Kaladesh, and I would love to play with some of those cards again. They don't have to bring back Smuggler's Copter. That you know what I mean? They don't have to bring back Etherworks Marvel. But I would just love to get something from that set back in the historic format, because I really, really enjoyed playing that so yeah fingers crossed cool all right so now we are looking forward to Akaria. it's about to be released um you're going to be at the early access event i'm going to be at the early access event and so you know i'm we're both really excited to start diving in with the cards and so tell me what's the thing that you're most excited excited about for this set i am excited to accept wizard's challenge to maybe try a three-colored deck And again, this could go into a four or five color deck as well. That extends out to those different types of innovations there. I was not here for Alara Block, and I played cons a little bit, but not as competitively and constructed as I could have. And this whole set is saying, look, we know the Shocklands are only going to be in standard for another, for a given amount of time. Here are these tricycling lands. We want to see what y'all can do with three plus color decks, you know? And I guess we should have seen this coming, A, with the guilds of Ravnica and all the Shocklands that typically come with Ravnica sets. And then also another card that should have maybe tipped us off a little bit, Golos. Now, we haven't seen a lot of Golos in standard for a while. Remember Field of the Dead. A lot of people don't want to remember Field of the Dead, but that was a deck that did exist. I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot of Golos in that was a hint that something much bigger in terms of us playing multiple colors within a competitive format is concerned and one surefire sign of that is the ultimatums what do you think of Icoria so far yeah i i'm stoked about this set for a couple of reasons one of them is just that it seems like there's a lot going on and a lot of possibility and so i just i feel like it's totally gonna shake up standard and that's that's really my biggest thing right now is as and and you know my audience knows this and i think a lot of other people have been feeling this too but i'm i'm just tired of standard as it has become lately. And I think that that's kind of true when you get close to any set rotation, but I think this one especially has been feeling a bit stale to me. And what I'm really hoping, like fingers crossed, I'm hoping that Ikoria is going to shake things up enough to where we're going to start to actually see new archetypes. We're going to start to see new things become dominant. I would love to see an uh, Ikoria-focused deck be the best deck in standard. It might actually have the tools to do that because there are some incredibly, I, I'm not sure that I want to say broken cards quite yet, but definitely some of the stronger cards that I've seen in recent times uh, are in this set. And so, yeah, I'm I'm really, from a top level view, I'm excited for it there. Um, I'm a little bit, okay, so the, the, the flavor of the set, 
I'm not quite sure about so far. Personally, I haven't been a huge fan of the Godzilla crossover that they've done. So, you know, call me like a, a naysayer on that one. It, it kind of takes me out of the world of magic. It was a little bit jarring for me to see that. But um, other than that, I, I can get down with it. I like the beasts. I like the animals. I like all of that kind of stuff. How, hot take. How did you feel about the, the Godzilla thing? I, at first, was hoping with the Godzilla theme that we were going to be entering a more aggressive standard. If you look at some of the aggressive decks out there, I feel like the lack thereof has made the standard very stale. A healthy standard has many aggro decks, many mid-range decks, and then some to many control decks. Right now, I feel like Standard is in a very controlling place right now. And a lot of people would point the finger at the Planeswalkers from War of the Spark that completely changed the surface of how Magic has been played, specifically Teferi Time Raveler. If Teferi hits the field, and even the person who's the control player is in peril because then they can't run any counter spells, we're cutting out a whole type of a whole type of uh, archetype of playing by ruling out counter spells. And then, of course, how many board wipes are in standard right now? <laughs> like, a lot. A lot. So that's kind of discouraged those aggro decks from coming to the surface. There's been a couple, but they've kind of been, you know, far and near. So in terms of the set, and I wanted to ask you this, do you really think standard is going to change? Right now, we have Teamer and Jeskai, both three-colored decks. Very dominant right now. Sultai as well. I don't want to leave Sultai out. We haven't seen too much from Abzan and Mardu right now. So do you really feel like this is going to shift standard? You know, they wanted this Godzilla. They wanted these big, tough creatures. I don't think we're going to see much of that right now. Magic likes to kind of give us these little hints of what the future might look like. And yes, I do feel like there may be a time and place where these Godzilla cards do become more powerful. They do become the face of standard. But I think until cards like Teferi Time Raveler and Kaya's Wrath and a couple other Wrath cards rotate out, we might not get a chance to see the full Wrath and Fury of these huge creatures. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, it's a good point. Like, there are some sets, like I think Theros Beyond Death, for example, was a really good example of how it took us a lot. I mean, we're, we're almost into Ikoria, and I still feel like this standard set has been... The current standard set has been developing to incorporate more and more of the Theros cards. So like right at the beginning of Theros standard, we were it was basically like Eldraine standard with um, a couple, you know, it's like, okay, blue white archetype, which was already getting played was now shifted into using Elspeth Conquer's Death and this enchantment package and Dream Trawler. So that was like a big change. But there were a lot of other decks like the Fires decks and um, even Mono Red, which became more playable, but it wasn't like a total 360, uh, like a total 180, I guess I should say. So yeah, I, it's it's very possible that I think we could see right at the beginning of Ikaria Standard that we don't have like an immediate shakeup. But I do, just looking at the cards in this set, there's like something in the back of my brain which is just making me think like this set is gonna change things. Okay, so let's talk about some of like the larger themes of the set. This set is definitely very creature focused. Uh, it's definitely very permanent focused. 
So I think, you know, the how good Ikaria's standard is going to be and how good Ikaria is going to be in standard, I think is going to be directly relative to how important creatures are. And this set is definitely pushing the creatures pretty hard. And so like with a, um, you know, with mechanics like mutate, for example, that really, it puts the onus on creatures being important. And it is kind of interesting to think about how our current standard like okay like creatures are important right creatures are still getting the job done creatures are actually the soldiers which are delivering the death in standard but it's almost like it doesn't really matter it's like when you look at the creatures like a creature like oro for example it's like yes oro is a six six yes it's a creature yes that matters but that's not actually why the card is good right or or like as another example hydroid crisis like a, a, you know, Simic card, of course, because Simic's just amazing. It's like, yeah, that card's good, but the reason it's good is not because it's like a 6-6 flying trampler, right? And then when you go down the list of other cards in standard, you know, creatures in standard, the important things about them are often not, you know, the creature ability, it's it's the thing that comes with it, or it's, it's the implications, right? And I think that's going to be true in this set, this set as well. Like, I think that, you know, there are a lot of creatures with important ETB effects. I think there are a lot of creatures that are going to have a really big impact when they hit the board. But the fact of the matter is that with all of these mutate triggers, it's like it's going to ask you to already have something down, right? And so you're, you, you really are going to have to be starting to think about building your deck with more creatures in it, or at least more token generators, more something as a way to kind of get the party started if you want to actually get the benefit from that mutate. So it, it asks some interesting questions of the format. Like, for example, if you want to run a control deck and you want to leverage any of the mutate creatures, you're going to have to figure out a way to make creatures. So like an example of this is, is Vadrock, right? The Jeskai legendary creature, which I think a lot of like Jeskai control mages would love to run something like this, which comes down, which gets permanent of converted mana cost three or less back from the graveyard to the battlefield, lets you cast it when you play it. That's like a card that, you know, a Jeskai control mage would love to cast, maybe get that Teferi back, get that Narset back, something like that. But, in all, you know, in order to do that, you have to have a creature out, right? And so, uh, you know what's funny? I was just going to say Birth of Miletus, right? It makes a creature for you, but it makes a wall. And so <laughs> that kind of makes your Vadrock <laughs> not very good. But it's like already we're running into this issue of like, how are we actually going to make this work, right? So I think that's really going to be the key is how... How are we effectively able to work more creatures into our decks without compromising the power level? So anyway, I just said a lot there. Like, what, like, what is this shaking loose for you? Well, I like how you talked about when Theros started that it was really just all drain standard plus a couple of cards. I think it's going to start out that way because this isn't a super creature heavy standard. So some of the heavy hitters, the decks are based around getting a really ideal board state. Simic Flash, you just want to make sure the field doesn't get flooded, and then at the very last second you put in one card that's going to win the game for you, and someone scoops right there. Uh, with Ramp, you want to overwhelm your opponent. You want to have all the cards in hand while they have nothing in hand, and they scoop there. I mean, what was the last time you really saw an opponent go down to zero life? Most of the time you're going to see someone surrender before that happens in this current standard. 
And I think what Wizards was trying to do is they want people to see that creature interaction together. We've lost a whole part of the game where these creatures are supposed to be clashing with one another. Team Iraq, that's another one. You uh, put a bunch of mana together and then you just launch that mana at your opponent in the form of damage instead. So the way in which this standard is going to morph, it's going to start out again, and we're not even going to call it Theros standard. We're going to call it Eldraine standard with Theros and Ikoria cards now. I think that's a great way to explain it. How this format is going to shape and morph is going to be up to the aggro and mid players to assert dominance on the field and punish those control players for early moves. Now, to do that, as you said, that would involve those players working around Teferi. How many decks do we see that have Teferi as a four of in there? Or Shatter the Sky, a wipe that comes pretty easy. It's it's just four mana, and it y all you have to be doing is running white to wipe the field. Deafening Clarion, if you're running Just Sky Fires, you're going to see that for early creatures. So it's going to be about how aggro players can use some of these tools to try to work around that control mechanic and punish control players for just kind of sitting there playing Birth of Miletus on turn two, Teferi on turn three, Board Wipe on turn four if necessary, and how they're going to work around that. So let's unpack this a little bit by diving into some of the new cards here because we'll see how it'll all shake out and it's, it's hard to call the shots, but I think when we start actually looking at the cards that we're working with, that's going to help us to, to dig in a little bit. So I was thinking maybe we could start by talking about the cycle of legendary monsters, the legendary elemental beasts, as a starting point to kind of get an idea of what might be possible in this format. So I mentioned okay. Vadrock, the Jeskai one, as the first example. And, you know, I wanted to ask you... Allison, like when you look at these, this cycle of the three color legendary big creatures, the mutate mm -hmm. creatures, which ones have stood out to you or started to get your, your juices flowing? I think the one we're going to see commonly right away is going to be Aluna Apex of Wishes. That is the teamer one. So we think about the current decks in standard. We have teamer clover, teamer wreck, Simic Flash and even Jeskai Fires and Super Friends can use this with its convenient mutate cost for both decks. Because remember, Fires of Inventions on the field, that makes mutating very easy. Very easy. And remember, um, the mutate cost is three, and then you can either pay a red or a green and then two blue. Meaning that it's easy for Jeskai to put in, and it's easy for any kind of Simic deck to put in as well. And it doesn't have to be Simic Flash, it can be Simic Ramp as well. Or even... Uh, even uh, Bant Ramp can make use of it as well. So again, anything that uses fires can use it pretty easily to tap. And then we have some other kind of controlling cards, like even in the Bant Ramp that will get it to work. Uh, it's Flying Trample, it's a 6-6. Six, six, and it says, whenever this creature mutates, ex exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a non-land permanent card. Put that card onto the battlefield or into your hand. So that means Nissa who shakes the world again. That could mean a Cavalier of some kind in the Fires build. It could be a Teferi in the more control build. I mean, there's so many possibilities here. It could even, I mean, this is really, really scary to think about. In multicolored decks, it could mean a Dream Trawler. I mean... <laughs> it could. Yeah, Aluna oh into gosh. Dream Trawler is a nice little one too, right? Oh, yeah. 
So, you know, what this makes me think, especially in the Simic colors, is that I think we're going to continue to uh, to see a lot of this play pattern of, like, play an arboreal grazer or play the... Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the mana dock, which is the 0-3 that taps for a green, and it's the elemental. Oh, it's... Yes, I know exactly what you're you talking, what about talking about. because it's right? It's used in conjunction with Risen Reef, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Risen Reef is another one. Even Paradise Druid, right? So mm-hmm. I think that decks... Like, we've, we've seen some of these, like, Simic-based, maybe Teema-based decks fluctuate between having more or less of these kind of mana docks and small creatures. And I think that we saw a decrease in some of those with the introduction of Theros because there was so much shattering of the sky happening. Um, and also because people were just looking to do things that were a bit kind of bigger and broader. And so that really just leaned towards putting a lot of lands on the battlefield and trying to have the cards in your deck be a bit more impactful than just like mana docks. But I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see a return to the Arboreal Grazer and a return to the Paradise Druid and stuff like that because you can slam an Aluna. Like, think about this. Let's say your opponent does Wrath your board, right? And then, mm-hmm. but let's, you know, you've developed your mana, right? You've, you've been playing your ROs, your, your growth spirals. So you have some mana. So if you have a turn where you go Arboreal Grazer into Aluna into your next Nyssa, right? Or into your next mm-hmm. Elspeth Conquers Death, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like insta-board, right? Like insta-battlefield. You've you've basically recovered from the wrath. And so that's like definitely the kind of game plan that a player could work towards in a game. And I think that's the kind of thing that makes a card like a Luna pretty exciting. Oh my gosh, imagine this onto a Risen Reef. I hadn't even considered that until we started talking about that. Oh, Risen right, Reef would be such a good right? host. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's so amazing. That's definitely going to be a bonkers play pattern, I think, that we should definitely be looking out for. So yeah, the, the, you know, the, the whole Elementals package might see a little resurgence in this one. Okay, so let's talk about another one of these. Um, one of the ones that I was most excited about was Nethroi. Mm-hmm. Let's see if I can get the full name here. All right, so so Nethroi, Apex of Death. So this is the Abzan one. It costs two white, black, green. It's a 5-5 five, five Death Touch lifelink, and it mutates for four and either a white or a green and two black. So seven mutate cost, but whenever it mutates, you return any number of target creature cards with total power 10 or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. So this is definitely, and I've noticed this in general with Abzan in this set, it seems like it's really focused on creatures and again, really focused on permanence. And um, this, this whole idea of like this graveyard synergy and and bringing things back seems to be a really Abzan aspect of the whole thing. Abzan also has, maybe we'll talk about this a bit later, but it has that enchantment, the Oasis enchantment, which Mm -hmm. it has a very similar theme of bringing stuff back from the graveyard. So when you look at a card like this, it's pretty obvious that you can do a lot of busted stuff. I mean, power 10 or less, like total power of 10 that's a lot of creature right like and so i i don't know i I just this is one of those cards where i can't immediately summon to mind the best thing that you might be able to do with this but i just think that that's such a a large amount 
of impact on the board or potential impact on the board that it's hard for me to imagine that this isn't going to see some kind of play. Yeah, and as much as I can see it entering play, I can think of some ways to play around it. Now remember, we're keeping a close eye on the graveyard right now with the escape mechanic. That was something Theros kind of told us to keep in mind. So some things to watch out for if you choose to go with Nethroy, and I could totally see the Golgari dump stuff into the graveyard type of thing going on. However, a lot of people are beginning to play Agonizing Remorse. If it's not in the main, it's in the side. If it's in black, and you can exile stuff out of the graveyard. So many people think it's just another Thought Erasure. It is not. And not only can you remove it, but you can go into the graveyard and exile it. It's such a good card. And then, did you know that card, the decks are starting to sideboard in Leyline of the Void? Leyline of the Void is still in standard. Did you know that? <laughs> I know. Fun <laughs> fact, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, Nethra is cool. I mean, I would love to see, like, some questing beasts hit the field off of it. I mean, that is one of the biggest, baddest green creatures I can think of right now. But I see Nethra being more of a commander card right now. Remember, this is the year of commander. Whereas cards like Badrock and Aluna, that's kind of more relevant with where standard is. If you're to keep an eye on the Sleeper Elementor, El- Elemental Beast... I think it's going to be Snapax, Apex of the Hunt. Watch out for those Mardu cards. I'm telling you all, they might just pack a punch when you least expect them to. Yeah, you're right. It is fairly easy to hate on Nethroi, Apex of Death, and the whole strategy that it's going for. I mean, the fact that we still have Ashiok 3 in the format, like that's obviously mm-hmm. a total nightmare for a deck like this. I wonder if there might be some more combo-based applications for a deck like this where you're actually trying to, like, mill a bunch of cards and return them in the same turn. Mm -hmm. It's very possible something like that could be going on. It's also possible, you know, I wonder, and and Nethroi is not exactly a great application for this, but I wonder in general if Obzon might have, like, kind of a, a controlling uh creature thing going on like okay let's talk about another card in this set for example okay the legendary human general kudro of drowneth now this is an ozov card black and white but uh you know ozov is also a part of obzon mm-hmm. and general kudro is actually a graveyard hate card that i'm expecting to see in this format at quite a lot, you know, because graveyard stuff, you know, because we're seeing a lot of Oros. And of course, you know, we're, we're going to be seeing a lot more graveyard stuff in this format, of course. I actually could imagine a deck which is running both of these cards. Like, I can imagine a deck that's running Nethroi alongside General Kudro, maybe not trying to do this super over the top, going to return all 10 power of my creatures kind of a thing, but doing more yeah. of like... Let's say you had an Obzon deck that was running cards like Oath of Kaya. Yeah. And the hero, Hero of Precinct 1. Yeah. And then maybe you have like a top end of Nethroi. And so maybe you don't have that many other creatures in your deck apart from those three creatures, right? And let's say that you're playing this kind of this kind of mid-range control plan and you're killing a bunch of your opponent's creatures and you're managing their planeswalkers. Maybe you're even playing your own Wraths, right? So maybe you're doing this kind of thing that Esper Hero 
was doing in the previous formats. And maybe at some point, like later in the game, you slam your Nethroi onto like a 1-1 token and you get back a hero of Precinct 1 and you get back your general Kudro, right? Um, so I could, I could see some play patterns like that, which weren't like immediately combo, destroy your whole board kind of strategies. And also strategies that wouldn't get totally wrecked by a card like Ashiok, for example, or Agonizing Remorse. Now, of course, I mean, this is just like off the top of the dome, but yeah. I wonder if Obzon might not have a bit more of like a measured, con- like like a creature control kind of an aspect in this format. You realize you can also Ashiok yourself, so you mill the cards and they fit in the colors because you can use double black to cast Ashiok, and then your opponent's graveyard just yeah. falls by the wayside. Yep, so you that's... could use Ashiok in the good way, too. Yeah, I, you know, interesting idea. Again, maybe it maybe it goes nowhere. Let's just talk about some of the other ones here. Okay, so what do you think about Snapdax? Now, I think Snapdax is one of these cards which in a lot of previous standards would have been totally busted. Let's just take a look at what Snapdax does. So Snapdax costs one red, white, black. So it's the Mardu legendary. And it mutates for five mana, two and a red or a black, and two white. Has double strike, it's a three five, the important thing is whenever it mutates, it deals four damage to a target creature or planeswalker an opponent controls and you gain four life. So it has kind of a drain slash ETB kill effect. So I think, you know, I, I, there are so many standards where this card would have been formidable. I don't know how important it is in this particular format, but I think how good Snapdax is in this Aquarius standard is going to tell you a lot about the format. So like... Do you think that this is just not going to be good enough? What do you think about this card? I think the card that is going to sell Snapdax is actually not Snapdax itself. It's going to be the ultimatum, which is, in my opinion, the best ultimatum. Ruinous ultimatum, which is the Mardu ultimatum, says destroy all non-land permanents. Your opponents control. It is a one-sided board wipe. <laughs> so if you are going to go out of your way to be able to play the mana to cast Ruinous Ultimatum, why not throw Snapdax in? Again, it does destruction, and it may just be that final the final push that you need to win the match. So it, it could be like you're managing the mid-game slash finisher? Is that kind of how you're thinking about Snapdax? Yeah. And it also has double strike. There is always good ways to put double strike to use. That's true. That's true. And a 3-5 double strike is no joke, especially for four mana, you know? I mean, just being able to slam like a a turn four, 3-5 double strike if you need to, that shuts down a lot of things. I think that that is something to consider, especially if you're getting plagued by like an aggro matchup or maybe like a kind of a low mid-range creature deck. Snapdax could be, you know, who knows? The the other thing that's interesting about it is its ability to hit planeswalkers, I think, could be surprisingly relevant. I think there's going to be a lot of kind of dorky, these kind of random dorky one and two, maybe even three mana creatures that have kind of seen some play in standard just like come back around. Tell me if this worked. Let's say yeah. you have a Knight of the Ebon Legion. Mm-hmm. And then you throw Snapdax on it. You can still pump it, right? 
you pump it, and I believe you would gain Death Touch. Have you seen Death Touch and Double Strike? Death, Death Touch and Double Strike. And so we're talking, you know, one pump activation could make this a six power Double Strike Death Toucher, right? So Oh my gosh, yes. That's and a there's problem. also Embercleave, too. Let's not <laughs> With forget that you can right? still play Embercleave in this deck. Right. So it's, I don't know, again, like, who knows whether that's going to be the thing that pushes the standard over the top, but it, it's, these are the kinds of things that make you, they make you think with a card like Snapdex. And especially if you're able to get, like, a key blocker out of the way with its ETB effect, that could be something. I also like the play pattern. Let's say your opponent has a couple of Planeswalkers in play. I like the play pattern of kill the low loyalty one and have your hasty Snapdex attack the higher loyalty one right so there are just a lot again like if you just have a little bit of imagination about this it could just be very very dangerous to like let your opponent have any creatures on the board right like if i was playing against this deck and my opponent has yeah they have one knight of the ebon legion now you have to be thinking okay i might next turn be having this massive hard to deal with dangerous creature coming in at me yeah, one of the most important things that's going to make someone succeed as someone who makes full use of the mutate mechanic is to think about all the possible hosts and the synergy between those hosts. No, totally. All right, now, I don't want to spend much time on Brokos because I don't really think Brokos is going to see much play in Standard, but let, let's just cover him quickly so he doesn't feel left out. So... <laughs> So Brokos is going to be amazing in limited, but not very good in standard, I think. So Brokos costs two and Sultai, black, green, blue. And it also mutates for two and either a black and a green and, uh, sorry, two and either a blue and a black and also two green. So this is a 6-6 six, six trample and you can cast Brokos Apex of Forever from your graveyard using its mutate ability. So do you, do you agree with me that this is probably not good enough for standard? Yeah, it has the same shortcomings that Nethroy has. Again, a lot of people playing Agonizing Remorse were starting to see more Leyline of the Void. It's just too easy to shut down. However, recall the colors that Brokos is in. This is Sultai. There are many good candidates. So let's say you had to cast a Crisis early. No one ever wants to cast a Crisis too early. Let's say you have a 2-2 or a 3-3 Crisis out. That'd be a decent host for something like that. Turn it into a 6-6, six, six, give it trample. It inherits the flying from Crisis. Not bad. You know, you, you take a mediocre Crisis and you turn it into something great. And I love the ability to recast it from the graveyard. The only thing is, again, it's just, it's too easy to stop. It's too easy to sideboard in. It may be one of those cards where if you're in Sultai, you may want to start to try to steal a game one, but you may want to, mm. you know, take it out when you're going to sideboard, yeah. etc. Yeah, and you know, one of the cool things about this card is that um, if your deck is already milling, like I could definitely see like Cavalier of Thorns into Brokos, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Sure, like, yeah, Graveyard Hate exists, but if your opponent doesn't have an answer right then, you know, it's like next turn or even that turn, you know, you might be able to present like Cavalier plus Brokos. And so stuff like that, you could just see these very sudden swings in in the deck. And, you know, one of the things when I when I was looking at this card, I was like, well, this is just like a worse Oro. That's the first thing that I thought when I saw it. Because I'm like, Oro is also a 6-6. Oro also comes back from the graveyard, but Oro is also getting you a lot of extra good stuff. But 
One of the things that you forget about a card like Broco's Apex of Forever is you could just cast this from your graveyard every single turn of the game, provided you have a target for the mutate. So, you know, Oro, as good as it is, it's like you got to keep that graveyard stocked if you want it to keep coming back. And, and those decks can be pretty good at doing that. It's just, it's hard to kind of overstate how good it is to just have a 6-6 trample that can always be cast from your graveyard. Oh, if I'm playing Nyssa, right? If you're playing Nyssa, you're playing Broco. Yeah. Yeah, they exactly got your hasty trample 6-6 that's always coming back from the graveyard, right? So... So yeah, you know, that that's that's somewhat convincing, right? I could I could imagine Brokos as like a one of. Well, yeah, exactly like you said, like a two of in a starting deck, and then it's just one of the first cuts that you make if you need to. Mm-hmm. It's a good game one stealer. That's how I would identify Brokos. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a that's a great analysis. Okay, so there we go. We have those guys. Now you started to talk about the ultimatums, and I definitely wanted to get into this. And I I even like before our show suggested that we try to do like a power ranking. So you've already told us that you th- you your favorite one, or maybe the one you think is the most powerful, is Ruinous Ultimatum. Is is that right? Yes. Now, the only disclaimer I will give here is there has to be a good Mardu deck brood. We won't see this if no one innovates on Mardu. However, how could you not want to brew Mardu after looking at Ruinous Ultimatum, after looking at Snap decks, and then later on we'll talk about Luminous Broadmoth as well. All very good Mardu cards coming into this format. I'm going to say that Ruinous Ultimatum is going to make people intrigued enough to be able to brew around it. Why? Because it's all non-land permanents. That includes enchantments, artifacts, planeswalkers, you know, all the real difficult things to destroy right now. And I feel like Runus Ultimatum is one of those cards that can immediately turn the game around as a result. And remember, you don't lose your stuff either. It doesn't come with the downside of a board wipe that all of your stuff gets destroyed as well. Yeah, you know, it, it's a good point. And my only skeptic, because I mean, I agree, like this is just a, a fantastic card. Any deck would love to be able to resolve a card like Ruinous Ultimatum. I think that um, one of my reservations that comes with it is that when I look at the current standard format, it seems fairly resilient to this kind of effect. So, and and which isn't to say that all decks are going to be able to recover from it because they won't. But it's like a lot of these decks, like all they need is just one fires in play to go off or all they need is, is, you know, one wilderness reclamation, something like that. And I think that one of the drawbacks to a card like Ruinous Ultimatum is that it's coming down late in the game. And unlike some of these other ones, which have green in the mana cost, like three of the five ultimatums are green and two of them are in the Simic colors. And so it's easy for me to imagine those ones coming down early, like earlier than turn seven, right? Um, Ruinous Ultimatum, I think, is going to be pretty hard to get down before turn seven at the earliest, unless you're, you know, running one of these four-color decks, which could happen. You know, maybe maybe we will see these Ultimatums in four-color decks instead of just the three colors that are suggested. You know where we're going to see this? I just thought of it. Lay it on me. People are going to use Runus Ultimatum as a wish card in their sideboard with Fave Wishes with Fires. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. I totally feel that. <laughs> it kills Dream Trawler. I mean, there's not too many cards that can do that. And if you're in the Fires Mirror, it kills their Fires. 
Well, I think that you actually bring up a good point that Ruinous Ultimatum might not be the kind of card that you're trying to hard cast, but the card that you're trying to like, yeah, you're trying to wish for it. Maybe you're trying to spike it off of um, some effect that lets you cast your spell for free, right? That could actually be like your plan A with Ruinous Ultimatum. And I mean, I, I totally agree that it's great. It's just that it's it's... Here's the thing. It's hard for me to imagine a Mardu deck running this. Like, it's hard for me to imagine you look down at your deck and your land base is entirely red, white, black, and you're running Ruinous Ultimatum. That's the thing that's kind of tough for me to imagine. Maybe like a Mardu Fires deck, perhaps that yeah. could be a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I think the starting point for looking at these is asking yourself, how am I going to cast them? Because obviously they're all seven mana and all of the costs are pretty prohibitive. So that's one of the reasons why when I'm looking at these, the ones that really jump out to me, first of all, are Emergent Ultimatum and Genesis Ultimatum, just because I think that they're going to be by far the easiest to just, you know, hard cast them from your main deck. My challenge for you, though, on uh, Genesis Ultimatum, how is it a better escape from the wilds because i read this card and i'm like oh so it's another escape from the wild yeah i i'm i'm definitely not saying that i think genesis is one of the better ones <laughs> so yeah. I'll, I'll put that right out there because it's true you have to have very specific circumstances under which you would run this and it's actually funny that you were talking about wishboarding because my first thought for genesis ultimatum was i want to run this as like a spicy one of in the sideboard of my team or adventure deck mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. able to like slam it just wish for it and slam it that turn in the late game in my team or adventure deck and just go totally over the top but here's the thing it's like in that deck if you're wishing for a seven mana a sideboard card you're, you probably should just be going for something that's going to win the game that turn so right yeah it's hard to in my current like mind in the current setup to determine exactly what kind of a deck is going to want to slam genesis ultimatum i think it's possible that if you're running a deck which is just a bunch of cavaliers you know th this is a card which really doesn't want for you to be casting x spells right you you probably want a deck which has like a number of cards like brokos cavalier big planeswalkers just big chunky expensive permanents you want to have a critical mass of those in your deck if you're going to cast a card like genesis ultimatum yeah, and if you look at the ultimatums, notice that three of these five ultimatums have red in it. If that wasn't designed with fires in mind, <laughs> and they're both not going to rotate until the same time, I don't know what it is. I see what wizards did here. Yeah, so so you think this might just be... Uh, all, all of these are just going straight into the fires deck. <laughs> I mean, except for maybe Emergent, because Emergent, you're going to see a little more of that ramp. You're going to see Nissa. I could see Emergent, like, seeing the natural cast use. But even then again, it's like, where's the line between these are game-changing cards and these are win-more cards? And again, we have to keep in mind that Wizards wants a lot of these cards to be used in Commander. So when we're merely talking about standard application, when it comes to ultimatums, I see the, the ones with the red symbols being used in it the most. Four Fires, Inspired Ultimatum, I can see being the most used ultimatum because that card is Jeskai Fires and everything Jeskai Fires needs in a bundle, especially with that draw five. 
Well, okay. So I love that you brought this one up because I've a lot of people on Twitter and Reddit and stuff have been posting all these memes about how bad Inspired Ultimatum is. And <laughs> it all stems around that target player gains five life, the white part of it. Yeah. But when yeah. I'm looking at all of these, I actually feel like Inspired Ultimatum may be the one that gets cast the most in standard. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is just that I could definitely see a control deck wanting to run one or a couple copies of this. It's not hard to see that this is just a way that a control deck... Like, okay, let's say that for any number of reasons, your Dream Trawler plan is not your go-over-the-top plan in your in your white-blue control deck anymore, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of things in the format that could make that the case. And if so, you might actually find yourself looking for like a big, expensive, push-over-the-top sorcery that's going to get the job done that's not necessarily a creature or not necessarily a planeswalker. And so um, I could definitely see a deck just like controlling the board, playing some cheaper planeswalkers, moving towards a late game where they get to slam an inspired ultimatum. And this card just basically says seven mana stabilizer control deck or the mirror match when it comes to Jeskai fires that is a Jeskai fires stabilized think about it these numbers weren't um weren't um put here on accident gains five life deals five damage to any target that's any of the cavaliers in the fires <laughs> decks they all have five toughness on them and kenrith too kenrith that includes you know so here's what's going to happen you're going to gain the five life that you very much need by that point in the game. You're going to probably destroy Kenrith, and then you get to draw five cards, one of which will be your own Kenrith. I love it. That's a lot of advantage. This would just be called Fire's Ultimatum. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, well, if you look at the picture, I know y'all can't see this right now. Yeah. The picture is literally someone standing on a rock with like this this wave of lava kind of in the background. Yeah, this is for the Fire's matchup. And again, to get to the other the other ultimatums again, and I'm, I'm going to stand by my statement. We're not going to see any non-red ultimatums get played in standard. We'll see them in Commander, but I don't think we're going to see um, Eerie or Emergent ultimatum. Eerie of ultimatum, again, that's the Abzan one, says return any number of permanent cards with different names from your graveyard to the battlefield. Again, graveyard targeting. Have to be very careful in this standard with anything yeah. that targets the graveyard. Looks beautiful in game one, is a disaster in games two and three. And then Emergent ultimatum, it looks pretty. This is the Sultai one. Search a library for any three monocolored cards with different names and exile them. An opponent, here's the key. Yeah. You don't want to leave stuff in the hands of your opponent. An opponent chooses one of those cards. Shuffle that card into your library. You can cast the other two without paying their mana cost. And then you have to exile the ultimatum. The one thing that really has me hung up, three monocolored cards. Yeah. And while in most formats, that's okay. We are in a monocolored cycle right now, if you haven't realized it. The Stone Coil Serpent has protection from, um, from, from uh, multicolored, multicolored yeah. permanents yeah. for a reason. We're in a multicolored cycle right now. No, so you're yeah. right. It's so Okay, so when I was reading this card... Because one of the things I like about this card in particular is this card, basically if you're running this card in the deck, it has to have the words, I win the game on the spot on this card in order for you to cast it, right? And and so how do we actually manufacture that with this card? So I was I pulled up a list of potential cards to look at. And if you're just in a Saltai deck like let's say you just play like a salt eye ramp deck which plays this at the top end 
there are like there are a couple of targets that you could maybe consider. So two right off the top, which I liked, were uh, Kiara Best the Sea God. That's a totally fine card to have as one of your cards that you grab. Um, another one is Agent of Treachery. Not the best, but you know, definitely a, a seven mana card that you're happy to be able to search up from your deck. And then another one, which th- this is kind of where I started to, my mind started to wander a little bit, was that, of course, Endray's Forerunners is basically like the biggest, baddest, like drop a big nasty creature and end the game on the spot kind of a card that we have in standard at the moment. And so you could do worse. You could do worse in a game of Magic than putting those three cards in front of your opponent and saying, choose one of these, I don't get to cast, and I'm going to resolve the other two, right? Now, whether that's going to be good enough, I'm not quite sure. But um, those were kind of three right off the top of the dome. Now, I think that there are some other, like a little bit more combo-y things that you could start to try to do with this card, and that's where things get a little bit more interesting. Now, one of the things that I really wanted to do was use this card to cast Scholar of the Ages and then get Emergent Ultimatum back from the graveyard and do it again. But unfortunately, it exiles itself when you cast it, so you can't do that. So I'm, I'm kind of chuckling here throughout all this because here's my question for you. Why just not play Fae of Witches? <laughs> I mean, that's a fair question. <laughs> that's a fair question. Although, okay, so Fae can't get creatures, right? Right. So that's one benefit to playing a card like Emergent Ultimatum. So maybe if you're building like a, you know, if you're building a Saltai creature ramp deck, then maybe you try to use Emergent Ultimatum to just slam a bunch of big boys and hope that they end the game right there. Yeah, if if this was Commander and you had like, you know, all of Magic's history, there's some really cool three cards where you're not leaving your opponent with a great decision at all. But in standard, I think the game changes with this card a little bit. Just because you were talking about Cure Best of Seed God is one of the cards you'd pick. And eh, just fade that out of the, wish that out of the sideboard. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So yeah, this, this, now I was thinking if you dip into other colors, you have some other interesting options. You know, like there are plenty of powerful planeswalkers that could be really cool to slam. Like you have access to Chandra 6, of course, which is always a great card to resolve. Also a card you could just nab from your wishboard. Dracoseth is a red card, which just kind of ends the game if it doesn't get answered. So you do have a number of things that you... Okay, here was my biggest aspiration. Now this is this is just like jank 101 for you here. But I was thinking, supposing you cast Emergent Ultimatum and one of the cards you get is Parhelion 2. Boom! <laughs> Ooh, okay, that, that is... I like the jank, I admire it, I would love to see it. Parhelion 2, one of the cards, I believe, from War of the Spark, right? Uh, arguably one of the most uh, powerful sets ever in Magic, or maybe not ever, but ever in recent Magic. I think that's a better way to put it. In recent Magic. And just everything that ever came out of War of the Spark was just really absurdly powerful. We have we have seen in Standard at one point almost all the cards from War of the Spark in terms of rares. Like, I have one of those uncut sheets, and every time I look through it, I'm like, yep, I've seen this one, and that one, and that one. Imagine Parhelion 2 suddenly. <laughs> wow. Just, just wow. Always finding use for those War of the Spark cards. I, you gotta love it, man. <laughs> you gotta love it. I, I don't know. 
So it's easy to scoff at emergent ultimatum, but I could see a world in which, you know, you just like have Liliana six in your deck. You just have Endray's Forerunners. You just have Cure Best of Sea God. You just have some of these other things. I could imagine a world in which you tap seven mana and you say, look, all three of these cards are going to be a major pain in the butt to deal with. And you get to decide which one you don't have to deal with and the other two you do, right? So maybe it's not good enough. Um, I, I definitely don't think this is the strongest one by any means, but this is one I haven't written off. Like, I'm I'm going to have to see all the permutations fail before, or, or I'm going to have to see a lot of counter magic in the format or I'm going to have to see a lot of like turn three, turn four kills in the format before I decide that I'm not going to try to play Emergent Ultimatum. One last note too, before we leave the ultimatums, I believe there's one card that will cause people the possibility to hard cast these ultimatums. Remember Chromatic Lantern is currently in standard there you right go. now. It produces that extra mana, so that makes it turn six viable. That's important because, remember, Trawler also drops on six right now. And uh, if you see a Chromatic Lantern, I would not be surprised to see this hard cast in a game. Yeah. No, that's true. You know, Lantern fixes and ramps, right? And you don't need that much. <laughs> you don't need much fixing and ramping to get to seven. So, yeah, I, I'm keeping my... That's the one I'm keeping my eye on. That's the one where I'm like, hmm, there could be something here. If not this set, next... I mean, while this is in standard, every new set, people are going to be looking at those expensive monocolored cards to be like, all right, like, is this time when we bust Emergent Ultimatum? But yeah, I agree. Eerie Ultimatum out of all of these seems like the weakest one to me, just just because of the you know the graveyard hate it's just so easy to answer this card in a number of ways i'll tell you where we will see eerie ultimatum i don't this is the one reason why i don't want people to sleep on eerie ultimatum you remember guardian project yes i could see some kind of brew between that and the guardian project and primarily the format you will see formats you will see this in is brawl on arena and then of course commander because these are all decks that revolve around playing one copy of each card yeah well here's another thing i i could imagine like aerial ultimatum to me seems like the kind of card where you you try to set up like a combo kill kind of like people did with Scapeshift and Field of the yeah. Dead, right? Mm-hmm. So, so some kind of like sack a bunch of permanents and bring them back kind of a thing. Yeah, it, it's like it's it's hard to imagine exactly what you could do with it at the moment in standard, but I think that something which revolves around like you build up to one big turn of sacking and reanimating, like let's say that you've been building up the whole game you know, let's say you have like your woe striders and your, you know, witches ovens of the world and your, <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, what, you know, maybe Gary. I mean, maybe you're running like kind of a, a yeah, black yeah. based thing, right? And then maybe you set up for this thing where like your opponent's graveyard hate is not, you know, maybe it picks off a thing here or there, but you're not putting all your stuff into the yard the whole game, but then you set up like a big turn where it's like, okay, I sack a bunch of stuff that's already on my board, put it in the yard, and then cast my ultimatum. So I don't know. I just, that's another one where I think like it's probably going to be more of a combo kill than just like a top end for like a grindy deck, but... I could see part of the combo being a classification. 
Oh, there you go. Plus 20 is no joke. It is no joke. I mean, you even put that on a robber, for example, a 2-2 with haste. That's it. Like, if they didn't gain any life, that's the game right there. So, okay, let's talk about this card real quick, because I think that, like, week one of the format, we're going to just be seeing, like, a million janky Colossification decks on the ladder. Oh, yeah. The, The thing that comes to my mind the most readily is Colossification plus Claim the Firstborn. That's, I think, what... That's, like, going to be level zero for that combo, because the... Oh, yes! I do want to point out really quickly, you can't haste with Colossification because you have to tap the creature. Exactly, I wanted to put that down. But there's still fling. <laughs> there is fling, right? So so that's exactly it. I, I could totally see a deck which just plays like a bunch of like cheap creatures. It plays four copies of Claim the Firstborn. It plays four copies of fling. And it just tries to frick, you know, and of course, four copies of Colossification. And it just tries to fricking get there, you know? So <laughs> the, uh, we're going to see it. It's probably going to be terrible. But just brace yourself for that on the ladder because it's going to happen. Are you waiting for the jank? Oh, I'm. I mean, the jank's already happening in my head. I'll t- I'll tell you what. <laughs> so, um, okay, so we we covered those two big cycles. I'm I'm sure that you have like a handful of cards that you're really excited to get building around. So let's dive into that. Like, what are some of the cards in this format that have got your your gears turning? Okay, so in terms, there, there's like two classes of cards. It's Cards I think we'll see play and how people are going to use it, and then cards like I'm really excited about. So let's go into, as someone who has been on the standard ladder quite a bit lately, uh, cards I think to watch out for. I have a card labeled on my list is the card that will destroy us all. And this could possibly be to the point where uh, this is a bannable offense. A very much a... This could be. Could be. I'm not saying it will be. This could be the Oko of this set. And everybody knows right now, you got that card in your mind that I'm thinking about. Song of Creation. I'm sorry, this card is really busted. I'm terrified of it. Um, Teamer already is a busted set of colors. Why give it something this powerful? So again, for those of you who don't know Song of Creation, it's one green blue red it's an enchantment and it states you may play an additional land on each of your turns whenever you cast a spell draw two cards at the beginning of your end step discard your hand that's not much of a drawback that's not much of a drawback it's not like and and it's one of the challenges with this is it's not legendary either so you can actually have multiple of these out at once So, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to definitely see people just trying to bust this card from the second they're able to craft it. The the first thing that came to my mind when I saw this card was comboing it with another card in this set, Riel the Everwise. So let let me just pull up Riel so I can read her for you here. Riel is, she's a legendary creature, human wizard. She costs one blue-red. Riel the Everwise gets plus one plus O for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard, which is kind of whatever. But she reads, whenever you discard one or more cards for the first time each turn, draw that many cards. So I could definitely see a deck which is focused on, like, you know, you, you try to play as many cards off of your song as possible, and then at the end of the turn, when you discard whatever cards you didn't play, you draw that many with Riel. And so I'm just envisioning a card which, I mean, a, a deck which, like, just tries to churn through itself at, like, lightning speed and cast a bunch of spells. And, you know, it's like, 
from there, it's like insert target finisher, right? It's like it's the finisher is not even necessarily important when you have an engine like that. You just need to find the best one. Right. There is one card though that shuts all of these cards down. Look out! You're gonna see more of it now as we go on. Uh, Narset three. Yeah, that's true. No, Narset always sucked to play against, and it's not gonna get any less sucky to play against. That's for sure. <laughs> and everybody forgets about her passive, including me. Sometimes it's so embarrassing. It's oh right. Yeah, that's on the field. Have, I'm sure you've. I'm sure you've had that embarrassing like um, cast your crisis into Narset experience oh, yeah. so you know whatever no the worst one was cavalier gales into it and then you have to put yeah, two cards on your hand on top of the deck yeah, oh. basically oh. discard two cards yeah that's pretty nasty <laughs> yeah don't forget to do that folks it's it's not fun yeah totally so yeah song of creation definitely a card i'm going to be building around in my uh early access event for sure there's going to be a lot of ways to exploit that card. Look out for it. Even in a limited capacity, it's still going to be really good. Yeah, no, it is All right. totally busted. All right, next one up. What do you There's got? another mythic I have my eyes on. So you're talking about creature and graveyard interaction. And uh, there was one mythic. You know, we've been looking at all these different elemental bees and some of the other mythics from this set. But there is one that particularly stood out to me. Have you seen Fiend Artisan? Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Yep. So, again, whenever you see the Golgari, you know, the Golgari card, the split and split, all I can think of right away, first card, Deathrite Shaman, right? Now, while this is not a Deathrite Shaman, it could have the impact of Deathrite Shaman. So it says Fiend Artisan gets plus one, plus one, plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. Again, that feeds into the graveyard strategy you were talking about. And then this text may look a little familiar to you. For X, and then you either play a black or a green, sacrifice another creature, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library, activate this anytime you could cast a surgery. Or sorcery, excuse me. Uh, do you know what card that is? Almost. Um, I mean, it reminds me of Vanifar, but it's basically one of these birthing pod kind mm. of things. Yes, yeah. yes, birthing pod. Yeah. And that was the card that I had thought about immediately as well. Now, the downside, it is a 1-1. It is very easy to pick off. I want to make that known. However, if this card gets loose for even a turn or two. Oh my gosh, the whole game could just be lost to it. Well, okay, now here's the interesting thing. You say it's a 1-1. One, one. The thing is, it gets plus one, plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. And the the casting cost of this card is two Golgaris. So basically you can pay two black, two green, or any combination thereof to cast Fiend Artisan. And so if you throw this thing down with any creatures in the yard whatsoever, it's like already going to be a big boy. So, you know, this is obviously a deck which is going to be aiming to be getting creatures in the yard. And so it's not hard to imagine this just being a two mana 5-5 five five or a two mana 7-7 seven seven or something. And so even just like the Tarmogoyf-ness of this card is enough to, to give you some pause. And then, yeah, just like you said, this is basically a birthing pod stapled to a Tarmogoyf. And <laughs> that's that should definitely make your eyebrows raise, you know, when you when you think about that particular combination. So it, it is not as good as either of those cards, but... You've got like a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, and maybe those both add up to make a creature that's good enough. 
absolutely terrifying. Yeah, this is definitely like, this is one of those, another one of those cards where I think if this isn't a problem at some point in the format, then people just aren't trying hard enough. You know, <laughs> that's, that's what I think about this card. And then there's one more mechanic I feel like we need to make sure we get to. It's the one that everyone's been talking about, speaking of bands. Companion. So the first, one of the first times I saw a companion, and I love otters. If you've seen my Twitter, there are just otters everywhere on it. So, you know, even before all this happened. Big otter fan. Lutri the Spell Chaser was banned from Brawl and Commander, I believe. Yes. Before, you know, banned before release. Exactly. But... What do you think about Companion as a mechanic? Okay, so a lot of people have been kind of saber-rattling about Companion and just saying it's, like, broken, too strong, you know, yada, yada, yada. And it's it's not that I don't agree that some of these Companions are super strong. I think they are. But for me, the thing that I'm worried about with these is just that it's going to homogenize the gameplay. That's kind of the part that is challenging for me. So for anyone who's not familiar with this mechanic, basically you get to start the game with one of, well, I guess as many of these as you like, but you can only cast one of them from your sideboard. So you put this card in your sideboard, they're all creatures, and they give you a stipulation for your deck. They say, companion, your starting deck must something, right? And if your deck meets the criteria then you are able to just cast this card whenever you like, whenever you can. It enters play like a normal card, and it just behaves like a normal card from there. So for any of you familiar with Commander or familiar with the Brawl format on Arena, this is almost like a Commander. The difference is that once it enters play, it is in every way just a normal card. So when it dies, it goes to the graveyard. It can do anything a normal card can do, and nothing a normal card can't do. So one of the things that I'm concerned about is just that being able to have access to one of these cards every single game in standard if you want to, I think really can make for some pretty boring play patterns. And one of the reasons why Commander doesn't become such a boring format in the face of being able to always cast your commander is that it's a singleton format and it's a hundred deck a hundred card deck format right so you you have a deck of 99 singleton cards and it's just you're just not going to draw the same cards every game when you're playing that format and so it's one of the things that keeps commander interesting right whereas with standard you're playing 60 card deck up to far off of any card that you want to play, and you also get this commander-like card. And so we're just going to consistently see these games where someone is... I mean, standard's already kind of samey, right? It's like you play against red and you're like, yep, one drop, yep, two drop, Robber of the Rich, yep, I knew that was coming. Are they going to have their Anax on turn three? Yes, they do have their Anax on turn three. So when you start to see you know, people with these companions, they're always going to have that card on the turn that they can play it. And so that that's kind of more what I'm worried about is not so much like the power level as just like the homogeneity of it. So one of my questions for you is, do you feel like this companion mechanic will change the way people choose to mulligan? That's a really interesting question, actually, and not one that I had really considered. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. So you might tell yourself, okay, well, I effectively have another card in hand, so I might mulligan more aggressively. Mm-hmm. Especially with the London Mulligan, too. Yeah, yeah, with the London Mulligan. That's a really good point that I hadn't really considered. 
And I think especially for some of these that have like p- these particular stipulations, like, I don't know, let's look at just one of these, Gigantha the Wellspring. So this one costs four and uh, gruel, so four and either red or green, and it's a five-five. And it says, companion, no card in your starting deck has more than one of the same mana symbol in its mana cost. And then you can tap it to add one of each color of mana, so Wooburg. And this mana can't be spent to pay generic mana costs, right? So you could easily build, let's say you build like a five color deck, which has Niv-Mizzet and uh, Golos in it. That's exactly the kind of deck that you might throw together when you have a card like Gigantha ready to play. And I could definitely see in a situation like that, you always have Gigantha. And so you're like, okay, I'm just going to mulligan until I hit a hand which has either Niv-Mizzet Reborn or Golos in it. And of course, you know, you're not going to like mulligan to four, but, you know, you might just mulligan every seven card hand which doesn't have one of those key permanents in it. That's because you know, you're like... I just know that I'm going to be able to slam Gigantha on turn four or five, depending on how aggressively you've ramped. You're like, I know that I'm going to be able to get my five color thing going on the next turn. So I think you're kind of onto something there. I I think it might actually homogenize the gameplay even more because people are mulliganing aggressively. So you talk about a homogenization of gameplay, and that is certainly a concern that I hadn't uh, considered or addressed. However... One thing that puts you at a disadvantage if you use this companion mechanic, your deck becomes more predictable. Yeah, that's Your true. opponent will know which cards you cannot play. Now, Gigantha is a little bit of an exception here because if you're playing, for example, Teamer, you can still wish for an Embercleave. It says starting deck. Right. Starting deck. Right. That doesn't count the side deck you can wish from. So Embercleave is still a possibility. You have to see the wish first, though, for it. However, you know, if I'm playing a card like uh, Clear the Orphan Guard, which is a card I've considered building around, each creature card in your starting deck is a cat, elemental, nightmare, uh, dinosaur, or beast card. If it's not any of those types, your opponent knows that those cards aren't in your deck. Now, you may think to yourself, in competitive play, a lot of times you're going to have your opponent's uh, deck list in front of you. At least in digital play, this has been the case. You get to have the deck list. So that wouldn't matter. So we might start to see maybe a divide between, you know, open decklist versus closed decklist. And there's just so many more layers of the game that this develops and how we choose to mulligan and think about our moves. That's true. And you do raise a good point. When you're playing Brawl or Commander and you look at someone's commander, you're like, I already know, not entirely, but you're like, I already know what strategy I need to take against you. So I think that you're totally right that it does give your opponent some critical information. And, you know, for all I know, it could actually increase diversity in the meta game because people are trying to meet these deck building restrictions. It could, in the very least, just create new archetypes, right? So let's look at one of these Loris of the Dream Den, for example. This one costs one and then two Ozov, either a white or a black mana. So three mana total. This card is a 3-2, and it says companion. Each permanent card in your starting deck has converted mana cost two or less. And it also has lifelink. It also says during each one of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. So I could easily see a deck that has not existed before coming into standard because of a card like Lurus of the Dream Den. And so what you're looking at 
is maybe like a deck which plays a number of cheap creatures that have very specific uses. And then maybe this deck plays, you know, because the permanents have to be cheap, but the spells don't. So maybe you have some cheap creatures and then you have some more expensive instants and sorceries and you're looking to exploit something like that. So we might see like a new cat oven deck, for example, that we didn't see before. And I think that that would be really cool. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what the Loris of the Dream Den deck is going to look like in Standard. Now, a card which I think is leaning more towards homogeneity that I'm not so excited to see is Karuga the Macro Sage. This one, I, and you know, I, I'm probably not the first time you've heard people talking about this, uh, but this card basically just fits right into the Fires deck in Standard right now. And this one costs three and two Simic, so either a blue or a green. And this one says, Companion, your starting deck contains only cards with converted mana cost three or greater and land cards. Also, when it enters the battlefield, you draw a card for each other permanent you control with converted mana cost three or greater. This is a 5-4, by the way. So what a lot of people have been pointing out is that the Fires deck already meets this stipulation with very few exceptions, and it's very easy to take out the exceptions. So if you look at your typical Fires deck, um, the curve usually starts at 3, and the only exceptions are that sometimes people will play some of the adventure creatures, like the Bone Crusher Giant and the Brazen Borrower, to give them some interaction on turn 2. But because those are both creatures, um, and because the casting cost of both of those creatures is 3 mana, they actually qualify for the uh, Karuga's stipulation. So, you know, we're almost certainly just going to see, you know, you're going to fire up your arena and you're going to go into a ladder match and you're going to see Karuga pop up and you're going to be like fires. <laughs> so what what do you think? Do you think this one's just going to be an auto-include in every fires deck from now on? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any reason to not include that. And remember, these aren't the rules of standard. You're not restricted to the colors of your companions. Some people may be a little confused with that. So yeah, there's if if there is such a deck archetype where it just easily fits a companion, you take advantage of the extra card. You have it in your opening hand, and it's the reliable. With Luris, for example, Luris fits into Orzhov Enchantments. It was a very briefly well-lived deck. But Orzhov Enchants plus Lurus would be awesome because you have your cheap creatures and then you can have all of your enchantments in there. And if you lose, if you have a handful of enchantments but no creature, you can just cast it from the graveyard. Uh, well, so unfortunately that doesn't work because Lurus says permanent card. Ah, permanence? That's right. That doesn't include Oros. That makes me sad. Then. I know. I guess I was kind of the only too. other. Ah, that is bum. I was, so I I also made the mistake because I thought planeswalkers weren't included. So I was thinking it was going to be like cheap (laughs) creatures and planeswalkers, but no, it is actually just permanence. It could just be board wipes then. And then you could just recast everything over and over. I love it. You know, this this is the deck, all right? This is your deck. You have Loris in your sideboard. You have cheap creatures. You have ramp spells. And you have ultimatums and and wraths. That's it. <laughs> That's all your deck Or what if it's a bunch of little creatures and you just reduce your land count? There you go. Yeah, well, there you go. And that's the kind of thing that wouldn't have been good enough pre a card like Loris, but because you have access to Loris all the time, it could just actually, you know, a deck like that might actually be viable on standard, whereas it wouldn't have before. So I think that that balances out the argument 
that we're going to see less interesting stuff because I think we are going to see a Luris deck. We're probably going to see a Kahira deck in Standard. I'm sure we're going to see Gigantha. I mean, there are so many decks in in a lot of formats that could just slip Gigantha right in there. Yeah, I realize that Luris is a little bit of a contradiction. Obviously, it's that you're starting deck, but it's three cost and everything is mana cost two or less. That card's so confusing. I know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm the biggest cat in town. <laughs> if you're going to hang with me, I need to be the biggest. So here's the thing as well. Now, we've talked about constructed play. Something I also want someone else to consider. If you pack one, pick one, one of these companions. Oh, my goodness. The ways in which you're going to be making your selections around having a deck like that. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I think there are definitely some of these that are worth considering for limited. I actually think these are really cool and limited because A of all, I think you're going to have to work pretty hard to actually make them busted. I mean, other than the fact that you get a free creature, which is in and of itself kind of busted. Like, for example, okay, would you first pick... Let's say, pack one, pick one, you see a Kahira the Orphan God. Would you pick that card? Yeah, that's rough, because if you <laughs> commit to something and you get cut off from that condition, well, then you just have a pile of cards at that point. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's say pack one, you, you pick, like, your Kahira, or you pick a Loris, or whatever, and pack one, you're just jamming, and you're just trying to build around this thing, and then let's say pack two, you're just, like... Nope, it's just not flowing, right? Like you've you've basically train wrecked your draft, and it's not just an average train wreck. There are some train wrecks where you're like, okay, I had this build around, like cycling build around, or I had a yeah, let's say I had like a warrior build around or something like that. The worst that might happen in a draft like that is that you're like, okay, I ended up with a draft deck with a bunch of creatures that didn't really have very much synergy with each other, which it's not great, but it's not a disaster. Like you still get to pick creatures. You still, all right, I guess maybe I'm picking non-warrior creatures now, but it's kind of okay. Whereas if you start trying to build around one of these and you get cut, like you might actually end up with a non-playable deck. Yeah. And it also makes it very difficult to pivot. Yeah. You know, one of the skills that I've picked up while learning how to competitively draft is the ability to pivot, the ability to be able to change, especially drafting with the bots is kind of an experience in which you can kind of get around that. When you are drafting with human people in paper or in MTGO, that's possible as well. Uh, that's a whole different game. Exactly. So I would say hats off to you. If you want to try to build around one of these in Limited, go for it. But just know that you're taking the road less traveled. <laughs> and I'm sure that one of the skills of this Limited format will be how to navigate that. Because I think every format has its build arounds and every format has its kind of hedge hedge bets and all that kind of stuff. These contingency plans that you have to come up with if you're trying a build around. And I think that we're just going to have to learn what our contingency plans are for picking a card like one of these. There's going to be a lot of reading in this format, myself included. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they will. <laughs> Constructed is going to be one thing in this set, but I think limited in this set is going to be wild. Yeah. Because think about this, like you're almost certainly going to have a lot of mutating happening in limited. It's hard for me to imagine there not being a lot of mutating mm -hmm. going on. And so you're going to have these stacks of two, three, four, maybe even more creatures that all have a zillion abilities. 
you're gonna have counters you know so it's like okay this creature is a combination of these two creatures this other creature is a combination of three creatures and now all five of my creatures have a different keyword counter on them that gives them a different ability it's like it's a nightmare can you imagine trying to track all of that no no it's gonna take time it's gonna be wild Uh, yeah i i I mean i think it's gonna be fun but i think that the complexity of this set is just like turned up to 11. yeah i'm used to when i'm playing in a draft or even playing a game in general just being able to go fast kind of play at my own fast pace here i'm gonna have to stop and actually read (laughs) things no you're gonna have to you know pull out those reading glasses you know pour pour a glass of wine (laughs) put your feet up get comfortable and then odd and even too and in some of the text of these cards zero is even that's something we're all going to have to remember lava brink venture being the number one card i'm thinking of here so uh yeah just make sure you read your cards carefully just like how i need to do that because especially with the companions there's just there's so so much going on uh one last note too that i wanted to make sure we didn't leave out vivian has passives we have not seen a plane walker with passives to my knowledge since war of the spark so that is also another innovation let's talk about vivian really quickly do you think that she's gonna see play in this format I think there's going to be Vivian decks, and then I think there's going to be Nissa decks, creature-based decks that have been trying to play Nissa just as this nice filler where you get to create lands every turn that doesn't necessarily need the mana. You're going to start to see that split between the two of them. I, I think that that's a good call, because they def- they're jockeying for the same position. So let's read this card. Vivian, Monster's Advocate. Three green green, legendary Planeswalker Vivian. The passive is you may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may cast creature spells from the top of your library. Okay, so this is basically like a, um, it's like an experimental frenzy for green. And or a Corsair Crufix too. There you go. Old yeah, it's Zero. a Corsair Crufix, exactly. So uh, starting loyalty is three, and which is low, by the way. Let's take a moment to appreciate both appreciate in terms of just consider, but also appreciate in terms of this isn't one of those busted high loyalty planeswalkers which i'm actually thankful for so three loyalty planeswalker the plus one is create a three three green beast creature token put your choice of a vigilance counter a reach counter or a trample counter on it so reminiscent of vivian but definitely different the minus two i would sorry nissa is what i meant to say reminiscent of nissa but different uh, the minus two, when you cast your next creature spell this turn, search a library for a creature card with lesser converted mana cost, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. So that minus two is quite a strong effect. Being able to wish for stuff out of your library, is it's, it's a strong mechanic, especially if you're able to get some toolbox creatures in your deck. Here's a card I was thinking about that actually might combine very well with Vivian, is uh, another card that was spoiled in this set called gem razor now this card is it's a three and a green for a four four has reach trample the mutate cost is one green green and it says whenever this creature mutates destroy target artifact or enchantment and opponent controls so being able to fetch up a gem razor out of your deck to take out an artifact or an enchantment with vivian is pretty cool like like what you could do a play pattern you could do for example is you could play a vivian uh and you could make a beast and then the next turn if your vivian's still around and has enough loyalty you can minus two you can cast a cavalier of thorns 
and then you can search your library for a gem razor and slam that onto the battlefield. Okay, so you would put it onto the battlefield, you wouldn't actually get that mutate trigger right off the bat because it just gets put onto the battlefield and you don't get the choice to mutate it. But you could, you know, any other creature you cast for the rest of the game, you could activate that mutate ability on the creature and you could take out your opponent's fires of invention or like another problematic permanent. So that's just one example of kind of a toolboxy creature that you might summon up. I mean, let's say that you needed to get rid of it that turn. Maybe you, you cast a four cost creature like a um, questing beast and then you search for a Brontodon. And then as long as you had one extra mana to actually activate that Brontodon, you could use it right away. So these are just examples of, of kind of toolboxy things that you could do with Vivian that I think make her pretty strong for a lot of situations. This Vivian solves the issue that green, and even more so mono green, has been having for a while. So mono green typically runs out of gas. It's never been known as the color to draw cards, okay? So when I compared Vivian to a Corsair Crufix, remember Corsair's for lands, Vivian is for creatures, which is really nice. She provides that 3-3, uh, three, three, that fuel, and it can be utility. Vigilance, Reach, Trample. Reach is one of the issues where uh, flyers frequently fly over your huge creatures. And yes, while there are spiders in green, Vivian provides a very nice, you know, means of getting Reach. The minus two is the key, though, to Vivian being more of a success. Remember, if you use minus two and you cast the creature spell... If that initial creature spell, the first one you're trying to cast, gets countered, I believe you still get that second spell, and because it's being placed onto the battlefield, that one may not be able to be countered or should not be countered unless it's something like Petty Theft off the Brazen Borrower card. No, no, you're totally but, uh, right. Yeah, because it's a cast trigger, so so it will resolve no matter what happens to that spell that went on the stack, which is really cool. Yeah, you would need something like a um, like a tail's end <laughs> to to counter Vivian's ability there. So that is super strong. It really is. And the fact is that a lot of these green decks play creatures, you know, that go up the curve, right? So you don't typically see like a green weenie deck. You're usually seeing these decks that are casting these more expensive creatures. And so being able to get a free creature of just one CMC less. Or, I mean, or less than that if you want, but like being able to cast like a questing beast and get a three drop is really strong. You know, being able to cast, like imagine a turn in which you have a Vivian, you cast a Cavalier of Thorns and you get a questing beast for free. And now your board has, in addition to whatever you had before, you have a Vivian, Cavalier of Thorns and questing beast all in the same turn. That's a strong turn. You could also do Godzilla and Questing Beast, or if you want to think bigger, Feasting Troll King into Cavalier of Thorns. Oh, baby. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, you know, why not? Like, why not think big here? Because I, I just like, that's what this set's going to be about as far as we're concerned. And maybe it won't. Maybe none of this stuff will get there. But I have a feeling it will. So, yeah. And I love me some green Stompy. I played a lot of mono green Stompy in Eldraine Standard, and I'm really hoping that there's going to be some kind of a viable mono green deck in this format. And I, I want to live in a world in which Vivian sees as much play as Nyssa. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. I don't know. I think for my money, Nyssa's still the stronger Planeswalker, but it's not, it's not hard to imagine scenarios in which that is reversed. And the other thing is, it's also not hard to imagine scenarios where you're running both in the same deck. 
So <laughs> yeah, if if I'm running a creature based deck, either Gruel or Mono Green, and now I have a choice between Nissa who shakes the world and this Vivian, and it is creature based, I'm actually picking this Vivian for that passive ability. You need to be able to keep fueling your deck. Yeah, I agree. Can you imagine though having Vivian and Nissa at the same time? That would be a pretty yeah. ridiculous combo. One could fuel the other. I mean, it certainly could. It would be a little costly of a deck, but if you were going for like this nice creature super friends-esque kind of vibe, I see it. I think we're going to see realistically one or the other, and I see Vivian being for creature decks and Nissa being for the more combo mana like you know, type of decks where, yeah. or, or even for elemental decks, we'll still see Nisu shakes the world in elemental yeah. decks because A, you know, if you want to play Chandra 6, remember Chandra 6 doesn't hit elementals and it won't hit those lands that Nissa has put into right. play. So that's one of the things that makes Nissa so relevant is when you actually start playing against Nissa, you realize that those lands can actually be really tough to deal with because, yeah, Chandra 6 doesn't hit them, Planar Cleansing doesn't kill them, Brazen Borrower doesn't bounce them, um, and that's just off the top of my head. So, you know, there's so many things where you stop to read it and you're like, oh, non-land, like, well, great. Like, that mm-hmm. doesn't do anything to my opponent's animated land. So, yeah, there are, there are a number of reasons why Nissa is still going to be an extremely relevant card. Great. Okay. So uh, before we go here, <laughs> this has gone on a while, but I just wanted to mention a few cards that have been on my mind here. So sure. the card that stood out to me when I was first looking at this set was the moth the luminous brood moth yes i wanted to talk about that one as well so let's pull up the luminous brood moth here now the brood moth costs two white white and it is a three four uh three four flyer i thought it had lifelink but it doesn't and whenever a creature you control without flying dies return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a flying counter on it So let's just stop and appreciate the fact that what this card basically says is the next time any creature of yours, like non-token creature of yours, dies, it actually doesn't die. It comes back to the battlefield and it gets flying. That's strong, dude. In a format full of wraths, this card is a house, I think. And especially the first place that my mind went with Luminous Broodmoth was as a curve topper for an aggressive white deck. A common play pattern that you'll see in decks like this is you're trying to run like your Alcid of Life's Bounty. Maybe you're doing like the white life gain thing. So you run your Alcid of Life's Bounty into your um, Ajani's Pride Mate, into any number of other kind of life caring about creatures. Another thing that we've had in previous formats is just like these more linear low drop white decks that are looking to maybe resolve um, the venerated Loxodon and pump the team and do stuff like that. But these decks are always really vulnerable to sweepers. And in the past, we've seen them play stuff like, um, oh, why can't I remember the name of that card? The card that gives your team indestructible and it gives them plus one, plus one counters. Unbreakable formation. Unbreakable formation, exactly. So they were leaning on cards like that to protect the team on the turn that your opponent sweeps but i could easily see a setup especially on the play so let's imagine you're on the play you resolve a bunch of your treat creatures you're getting in there right and your opponent is playing like a control deck and maybe they get down there to fairy on turn three they try to slow you down a little bit your opponent's building up to their turn four uh shatter the sky 
And if you on the play, you're like, okay, pass back to me. It's my turn for I play my Luminous Broodmoth on curve. Now your opponent's Shatter the Sky plan is terrible. Um, that Shatter the Sky is, is basically going to trade for your Broodmoth. And in exchange, the rest of your creatures that were on the board are now going to have flying. So they're going to get around that uh, wall that you made with your Birth of Miletus. And they're also, you're not going to be able to block them with your soldiers from your Castle Ardenvale, stuff like that. So I could see this card being kind of a nightmare for control decks that are leaning on cards like, um, especially the the more expensive Wraths. I think Clarion could get under the Broodmoth for sure. I was going to say, notice the PT of this card and how Clarion's uh, conditions are. Right, right, exactly. So yeah, okay, one of the cool things that you could do, right? So let's say you're running a Boros Aggro's deck. You could actually, especially in an aggro mirror, you could do something like you could board into Deafening Clarion of your own um, and then aim to be resolving that after you've got your Broodmoth down. And that's basically a one-sided wrath at that point. So I just think that I think that we're going to see a lot of people trying this card. I think it's going to see a fair amount of main deck play. I also think it's going to see a fair amount of sideboard play. Could we see the return of Feather with this? Now, I know if Feather dies, Feather doesn't come back because I had flying, but think about all the other cards that used to go in the Feather deck. That's true. You know, you had like a lot of cheap, aggressive creatures. Mm-hmm. 10th District Legionnaire being totally one of the ones. Now, wh- one of the issues with that, though, is that the Legionnaire gets counters, right? And it's going to lose those when it comes back. Yeah. I do think that when you're running this card, you probably want to be trying to go wide. That's, that's yeah. my guess. But, I mean, not necessarily. And like you said, I mean, being able to save even one key creature from a wrath or or basically just have now it has the text, this card is indestructible once. Mm. It's just like, that's super hard to deal with. A card like Luminous Broodmoth can really make any creature strategy really hard to deal with. And it it almost plays that role of, um, there was the angel in the last format, which gave the rest of your... Oh, no, I guess that was Hexproof, so that was different. But just basically a creature that gives all of your other creatures indestructible even once is just going to be very, very difficult to play around. I think people are going to be trying to break this card. It's possible the card is actually broken. You've also got to consider Enter the Battlefield abilities. So if you're playing a deck which is full of ETB effects, then you could actually be doing some sacrifice stuff. This could easily go into like a white X sacrifice deck some kind of aristocrat strategy. Um, I don't know. I could even see someone playing this in some of the blink decks, something like that. It's not necessarily synergistic with a card such as Thassa Deep Dwelling, but, um, you know, you tweak a couple of the knobs and a card like Luminous Broodmoth could actually fit into a strategy like that as well. So, yeah, I'd keep an eye out for this one. I'm definitely going to be trying to build around it for sure. Absolutely, and maybe someone will try to do something with this card and Nightmare Shepherd put together within a deck. It could be some sort of Orzov build with Athros, Nightmare Shepherd, and this card. It's just something to think about cards with similar effects, kind of a theme going there. Totally, totally. And unfortunately, Athros exiles, so you can't like go off the most. But you're right, it, this could almost be like copies 5 through 8 of your Nightmare Shepherd. If you don't so much care about keeping all the creatures as just doubling the effects, then yeah, definitely this could just be redundant copies of the same thing. Just uh, another card I wanted to bring up was the Sea Dasher Octopus. 
I think that this this card's definitely going to see play. I'm already worried about it. So Sea Dasher Octopus, one blue blue. It is a 2-2 two, two creature. Mutate one and a blue. So that's note that. That's a very cheap cost. This thing has flash, and whenever it deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. So, um... That sounds like a certain enchantment I, I used to know. Yeah? Is is this giving you PTSD? Because that's what's happening for me. Oh my gosh, Mono Blue might be back with this card. <laughs> yeah. So for any of you who didn't play against the, the deck we're talking about, it was basically a bunch of one-mana flyers, blue flyers, and then it played the card Curious Obsession, which basically had the same text on it. Whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. And so the entire deck was built around these cheap blue flyers and then getting the Curious Obsession down and then protecting the creature so you could just draw a bunch of cards, get in with a bunch of flying attackers and win that way. So Sea Dasher Octopus is definitely going to encourage people to try this again. I could see this fitting into, um, easily fitting into like a modified version of the Simic Flash deck in Standard, for example. I could also see maybe even like a blue-white flash deck or flyers deck, something like that. There might even just be like a mono blue, just another version of that mono blue deck. I think Simic Flash is right on point right now for the current standard. Yeah. So the only trick with Simic Flash that I see is that the only one-cost card they've been running is the Sailor, the Spectral Sailor. I think that Simic Flash might be looking for like another blue one drop flyer to fill out that curve and it could be terramander and it could be the two drop that also adds a plus one plus one counter whenever you play a you play a card during your opponent's yeah, turn yeah that's true yep both brineborn cutthroat yep brineborn cutthroat i could also see some people have played in slightly different deck they've played the flash fairy that gets a plus one plus one counter whenever you draw a card on your opponent's turn I could see a deck kind of running those two together as well. But yeah, definitely the ideal play pattern with this card is definitely to resolve your 1-1 flyer on turn 1, and then on turn 2 you leave up your your 2-mana counter spell. Oh, quench. quench! Exactly. So you leave up your quench, and then if your opponent plays into it, you quench them, and if they don't, you just flash down your octopus. Or maybe you don't quench them because you don't care about whatever it is they played, right? And then you just play your octopus and you go to town from there. And I'll tell you what, like if you've ever had to deal with a flyer that draws cards every time it connects, that thing gets out of control quickly. So yeah, this thing, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried. <laughs> That's what I'm... Oh, yeah, I'd be worried about that too. Another... Another access to Curious Obsession, and this time it's not in two colors like they did during Theros. Right, totally. On the topic of counter magic, I just wanted to point out that there are actually some pretty strong control cards in this set, with Neutralize being the one that stood out to me the most. This is basically Cancel with Cycling. So this card is one blue-blue, it's an instant, and it counters target spell, and you can cycle it for two mana. What do you think about this? Well, a counterspell with cycling. Gee, I wonder if control players are going to like that or not. It's I can't believe this card was made, but in a creature-based set where things are supposed to be like the big bad boogeyman, of course they're going to create a counterspell that can finally cycle. We're going to see a ton of this card. Yep. 
For any of you who aren't familiar with the play pattern, we've seen cards like this in the past. The last one that I remember was Sensor. That was counter target spell unless an opponent pays one, and it had cycling, I think, one or maybe two. Yeah. It's just so dangerous, a card like that, because you have this pattern of if your opponent plays into it, you counter it. And if they don't, and you want to use your mana, you can cycle it at the end of your opponent's turn. It also deals with the classic counterspell problem of what if you're in the late game and your opponent has already resolved threats and you don't need counters, you need answers, and you top deck a counterspell. That's usually a death knell for a control deck, but when you have a cycling counter, you can just cycle it out and try to get something else. I think we're going to see a resurgence of blue control decks. We also see a reprint of Essence Scatter, which is just always like a super efficient, that's one and a blue counter target creature spell. So whenever this card is legal, and especially when you have other good counter spells to play, we usually see some kind of a control strategy. Or even you might see people start bringing this in in blue decks that aren't control decks, but just bringing it in out of the sideboard to try to tempo out your opponent. So there's going to be a lot of Essence Scatter being cast in this format. And to be honest, I'm not looking forward to it. Actually, in Limited, I'm not looking forward to it either. Like having your creatures scattered and Limited is such a disaster sometimes. (laughs) So It's also the most beautiful picture of Essence Scatter I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Yep. Seb McKinnon just knocking it out of the park all the time, for sure. And it had to be on a control card. (laughs) as as is his want right okay let's talk about another exciting control ish i guess control maybe card in this set which Mm -hmm. is voracious great shark we have a counter shark what do you think about that card i really scared to see how it's going to be applied to the format i mean the picture does fit how i would typically feel about it i don't know how much it's going to change the face of things it is a flash but if you remember the last thing we had that kind of had that kind of countery anti-countery magic i believe it was thrix thrix was a little different thrix prevented things from being countered we didn't really see a ton of that so with this great shark here maybe a side deck sideboard could be well so here's the thing this card reminds one of the the Simic 3-2 counter guy. Frilled Mystic. Frilled Mystic, exactly. So Frilled Mystic is another creature counter spell. Let me just read this card, by the way. Voracious Great Shark. Three blue blue. It is a 5-4 flash. When it enters the battlefield, you counter target artifact or creature spell. So note that it has to be one of those two types, which is a pretty severe limitation on the Great Shark. So I think you're right. This is definitely going to be in some sideboards. I could see people bringing it in for matchups like Fires, maybe. Being able to counter your opponent's Cavalier and get a 5-4 blocker down could still just be excellent against the Fires deck. I think one of the key differences between Great Shark and Thrilled Mystic is that Great Shark is a threat and Thrilled Mystic really isn't. So it's not that Thrilled Mystic doesn't kill people and win games, but it's just a lot easier to deal with a 3-2 than it is to deal with... A 5-4. You have to remember, though, Frilled Mystic has no limitations on the type of spell it can counter. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So that probably means that decks that main deck Voracious Great Shark are probably going to be doing so because either they like having the threat anyway, 
or because the meta is so skewed towards certain cards that they just expect that they're going to have to hit an artifact or creature. I definitely agree with you. I don't necessarily think that this is just going to be like a four of main deck staple in the format, but I I think we're going to see plenty of voracious great sharks getting resolved in standard. And yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited and kind of nervous about it. If someone wanted to play mono blue flash, that would definitely take the place of the ambusher because remember they're not playing green. Yep, that's a really good point. There are just going to be games that are going to end like in a creature matchup when your opponent taps out to play their Cavalier or to play their Questing Beast or to play their even something like a Pelucranos, for example, or even maybe a Krasis, right? Like let's say your opponent just taps out to cast some big creature and you counter it. Even if they still get the value off the cast trigger, they're down a creature and you're up a 5-4. And I think there's going to be a lot of games that are going to end where, like, you cast your stabilizer, your opponent counters it, they put more pressure on the board, and you're just dead the next turn. I think the scenario we're going to see the Great Shark in the most is you have two control decks going at it, kind of like you have, like, this Spider-Man scenario where, like, there's not much going on in the field, and there's not much going on with life. All of a sudden, that Great Shark's going to come down, that's going to be the difference maker. Yeah. Can you imagine getting your Dream Trawler countered by a Great Shark? <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be terrible. Yeah, I mean, that's in, in a lot of situations, that's going to be a game-losing experience. So yeah, pretty exciting, pretty exciting. I, I This is a card I'm going to be definitely putting in a lot of decks, I think, whether it's good or not. <laughs> so... All right, well, we've we've gone on a long time here, and I appreciate the tenacious listener for sticking with us. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to bring up before we, you know, call it a show here? I would say, and I would challenge people to build multicolored decks, even if it's not in your wheelhouse, even if you've never played through Tarkir, even if you've never played through Alara. I would highly recommend to be innovative. This might be one of the highest periods of innovation we see because of the amount of lands available to us. We may never see this type of land cycle again available for a while. I mean, once guilds rotates out, we lose our shock lands. So I would definitely say be innovative. Don't be afraid to make the jank if you want to. And um, you can even be innovative around companions. You have to be creative, but you can still be innovative there. Yeah. I totally agree. One thing I wanted to note, actually, you made a really good point there, was that where our shocklands are going to rotate sooner rather than later, and they're going to leave a heck load of tap lands, right? So we have a full temple cycle. We have this, which is a half cycle of the wedge-colored mana. And I just, for anyone who's not familiar with this terminology, there's this distinction in magic between wedges and shards. So when you look at the back of a magic card and you look at the five colored dots, white, let's take a look at white, for example, to the top of the card. So if you look at the two colors next to white, those are green and blue. That is what's called a shard. So whenever you take a color and the two colors next to it on the color pie and you play those together, that is called a shard. Now a wedge is opposing colors. So you look at that white mana symbol and you look at the two opposite it and that is red-black. That's what's called a wedge and that's Madu. So in this set, it's all wedge colors. So the Madu combination, I mean the, the wedge combinations we have here are Madu, Tima, Abzan, Jeskai, 
and Sultai. So we're probably going to see, it's, I mean, I would imagine, maybe they won't do this, but I would imagine at some point soon they're also going to print a cycle of the Shard mana. Maybe they won't complete the cycle of the cycling tricolor lands, but they're going to probably do something. They're probably going to introduce another tricolor land into the standard at some point. So, and when they do it, will almost certainly also be a tap land. And so what I think this means is like when you have these decks that are full of three color tap lands, and when you have decks in general that are trying to play three color, and when you have a standard that is full of tap lands, you generally see a bit less aggro and a bit more mid-range and control because it just slows the whole format down. It's really hard. Like a three-color aggro deck without really good mana is very difficult to execute. So I, I do think that we can expect to just see the format slowing down over the next year or so and just like a lot more kind of dirtily mid-rangey, big finishy kind of stuff happening in the format. So I think that's definitely something to just keep an eye on and look out for. Like, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, you call them Witches and Shards. I feel odd. I call them Tarkir and Alara because that's how it differentiates them. (laughs) Dang, I just received a history lesson on magic. I like that. Yeah, well, it, I didn't know it for a long time, and I actually had to brush up on it for this episode, so I'm kind of showing off my homework. I like there. that. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, we're going to call it a show here. Thank you so much, Allison, Skybells on Twitch and in a lot of places. So let's just talk about that. Where can people find you and your content? Twitch.tv slash Skybills. That is where I put the majority of my content. And then Twitter.com slash Skybills. And then if you would like to find my speedrunning content, a lot of that is on YouTube.com slash Skybills. Okay, so Skybills all the way down. Yep. Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, Have fun at the early access event. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there. It's going to be a good time. And uh, yeah, I will look forward to hearing at some point in the future your updated thoughts about this format. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. Take care. So looking over the spoilers gotten me really hyped for this set. So come join me tomorrow. We can explore this set together, build some crazy decks. I think it will be a lot of fun. So I hope to see you there, and I'm looking forward to coming back next week to start talking about the Acaria Standard Format. Bye for now. Beep.